0: Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director of Doc NYC. recording this week as I fight a cold. On this episode, I talk to Alex Gibney and Blair Foster about their new HBO documentary, Rolling Stone, Stories from the Edge. It spread over two parts, lasting four hours, tracing the magazine's most memorable articles and contributors, including Hunter S. Thompson, Annie Leibovitz, and Matt Taibbi. Alex Gibney is a prolific filmmaker who was previously our guest on episode 16 when he talked about the influence of his father, Frank Gibney.
1: He always considered himself a journalist, and he carried himself that way in the sense that he was always curious right to the end, and he could talk to anybody, young, old, black, white, you know, because it just, he had a sense of curiosity about the world that remained right to the end of his life.
0: In directing the Rolling Stone film, Alex teamed up with Blair Foster, who's been a producer on several of his films, including Taxi to the Dark Side, that won an Oscar, and Mr. Dynamite, The Rise of James Brown. Blair was also a supervising producer on Martin Scorsese's George Harrison documentary, and she works on the New York Times op-doc series about race called The Conversation. I visited them at Alex's company Jigsaw Productions in Manhattan's Wall Street District, where the office has a view of New York Harbor and the Statue of Liberty. Rolling Stone Stories from the Edge spans five decades Jan Wenner founded the magazine with his wife, Jane, in 1967. The Monterey pop concert convinced him there was a market for youth culture. The film is structured around key articles in the magazine's history. As Blair puts it,
2: I always say this isn't a history of the magazine. It's a history of the last 50 years through the eyes of the magazine.
0: Alex has covered aspects of this era before. In 2008, he directed Gonzo, the life and work of Hunter S. Thompson. And in 2011, he co-directed Magic Trip, Ken Kesey's search for a cool place, about the influence of LSD and the Merry Pranksters. I started by asking Alex about his personal experience with Rolling Stone.
1: You know, I grew up on it, you know, as a, as a teenager. And, and then in college, I was reading it. Um, and so it was, it, was a, it was a music magazine, but it also had these great, political articles which uh, I really liked and they were always offbeat and 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 dug inside in a way that didn't feel at all part of official writing. You know, my dad is a was a veteran journalist at both Time and Newsweek. That was kind of the official journalism and it was for me it was it was eye-opening to see the Rolling Stone stuff. That's where. That's what I got turned on by. Was
0: there a specific article that you can remember? I remember.
1: I do remember Hunter Thompson, and I think where I really got plugged in was Hunter Thompson's writing on the seventy-two election.
0: Okay, so you were reading it.
1: Uh... I'm that old, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can say it. So because I I graduated from high school in seventy-one, okay. and you know, and, and also my my stepfather was a civil rights activist. You know, he um, he was arrested with Dr. Spock uh, for conspiracy, uh, for accepting draft cards. And so I was kind of plugged into that whole world. Um, And Rolling Stone was very much on the radar. But but with with Hunter, the great thing about it, too, was that it wasn't just that it was political is it was so personal and also so gonzo. I mean, it, it was that it was that mixture of rock and roll and politics that made it fun. Hunter Thompson's
0: coverage of George McGovern versus Richard Nixon was later collected in the book Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail. Here's Johnny Depp reading a passage in Thompson's voice. Compared to the Democratic Convention five weeks earlier,
1: the Nixon celebration was an ugly, low level trip that hovered somewhere in that grim, indefinable limbo between dullness and obscenity. Like a bad pornographic film that you want to walk out on, but sit through anyway and then leave the theater feeling depressed and vaguely embarrassed. There may not be much difference between Democrats and Republicans. I've made that argument myself. But only a blind geek could miss the difference between McGovern and Richard Nixon. You know, you didn't have to be the the person with the pressed trench coat. Um, holding a microphone up to somebody in power who's going to, you know, so, so that you're that person's stenographer. You could be talking about the drugs you took that night and um, uh, and the parties you had gone to and, and you show up on somebody's doorstep with a six-pack of beer. McGovern told a story where McGovern joined him for a drink and Hunter had four beers and Two margaritas and three margaritas. I think was it three margaritas? (laughs) Yeah, and then said uh, uh, and 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 then asked McGovern what he would like to drink.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Blair, I wonder what your take is. I mean, Rolling Stone always felt like a very male environment to uh, to an extent. Ellen Willis even described it as viciously anti woman. Um, What was your impression of the magazine?
2: So I was a teenager in the 1980s and 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 like for a lot of teenagers it was required reading still then. I think that was really maybe the last era where it still felt kind of essential if you were a teenager to read the magazine. And I can remember a period toward the late 80s where I think I subscribed to both Rolling Stone and Spin cuz Spin started to be, you know, the cooler hipper magazine. But I think in the 80s for me it was an it was an added avenue toward a lot of different kinds of music I wasn't Maybe privy to as a kind of sheltered middle class white person, and and it was covering bands like you know Cindy Lauper was on the cover, Madonna was on the cover, it was starting to kind of grapple with rock and roll and what music was becoming, which was a, a more widening and expansive uh, genre within kind of narrow bounds. But I think, yeah, I don't I don't think it was necessarily the most female friendly magazine. But I did a great interview with Jerry Hershey uh, for this piece, um, who, you know, her profile, her profile, Michael Jackson is one of the great all time profiles that you can read. And I do think there, if you looked, there were places for women, uh, in the magazine. And what I like about it is you didn't really notice it. They were there alongside the men and perhaps they should have been highlighted a little bit more, but, Mm -hmm. but there, there was something there. I think you just kind of
1: had to root it out.
0: So how did this project come to you and, you know, what did you see your brief as?
1: Well, it came to us from Jan. (laughs) Jan is not shy about promoting himself.
0: (laughs) And uh, you had previously interviewed him for your film on Hunter Thompson.
1: Correct. And then when, you know, it was time for the 50th anniversary, uh, as, as it was approaching, you know, he approached me. Uh, and we we started talking about it, and initially, I was skeptical. I wasn't. I certainly didn't want to do a film kind of glorifying Jan, um, and I wasn't sure I wanted to. And I certainly didn't want to do a film about um, you know some sort of uh, celebrity special where you trot out you know all sorts of rock stars who say, "Oh yeah, Rolling Stone was great." You know, that seemed kind of. Th- tedious. And it had been done. Dion had done it before. <laughs> so, uh, but, but the idea of celebrating the writing and the writers, that seemed like fun, particularly in a time when journalism is so much under attack. So that seemed to me to be the way in. And then, you know, um, Blair and I got together and started figuring out how to, how to make it work. So it, it came as an assignment, but an assignment that we had to make our own.
0: So the film is structured around different articles over the 50-year history uh, of the magazine. One of the earliest articles uh, that you look at uh, kind of felt like a surprising choice to me. It's on groupies. Um, and I wonder you know, how you came to choose that as one to focus on.
2: I, the, in fact, the entire issue is devoted to groupies. There, mm-hmm. are, there are a number of articles around groupies in it. We were looking for articles. Uh, there are a number of factors, I think, that went into choosing Which articles we included and. What that hit the sweet spot, I think, for us in terms of it was a very important moment for the magazine. It was the magazine kind of staking its ground and saying, we are not Newsweek or Time or, as Alex was saying, you know, we're not your father's magazine. And this is going on and you don't know about it and we do and we're here to tell you about it. So I think it's an important cultural moment uh, in general and it's an important moment for the magazine kind of staking out this is, this is who we are.
0: Perhaps the most famous groupie was Cynthia Plastercaster. She worked with a team of women to create plaster molds of rock star appendages. In the film, we hear a section of the groupie's article, read by Jeff Daniels, combined with archival footage of the Plastercasters.
1: In the Plastercaster's diary, a penis is called a rig, fellatio is called plating, and a fellator is called a plater. Masturbation is called banking. And a masturbator is called a Barclays banker.
0: Cynthia asked me, you know, at that time, if I'd like to be a plaster caster. I became her plater. She called me the head plaster caster because I gave the head. And she's a master plaster caster because she's the originator of the idea. I asked Alex how he found the plaster caster footage.
1: As Some people at the Maryland Film Festival will tell you, you know, I did a, I, I did an event about guilty pleasures. Mm-hmm. And one of my guilty pleasure movies is a movie by the Yugoslav filmmaker, uh, Dusan makafiev, And he did a film called W.R. Mysteries of an Organism. Mm-hmm. And the footage is from there. Wow. Um, and so... I was always oh, stunned. Organism or orgasm? Organism. Oh, but uh, orgasms are referred to often. It's about okay. Wilhelm Reich. Right. And so he gets into the orgone boxes and everything, but it's the kind of film that can't be made anymore but was being made in the kind of 60s era it's a combination of there's a fiction story there's straight ahead cinema verite there's wild sort of narrative stuff about narration about Wilhelm Reich and and there's Tupi Tuli Kupferberg a, a performance artist wandering around with a gun <laughs> um and then there is the plaster casters um, that had been
0: shot for that film? Yeah, for the, I, I believe for so. Right um,
1: anyway, that's where I discovered it. and and Because it, it was all about, you know, sort of celebrating sexuality and sexual organs in this case. So, so I insisted.
0: <laughs> so the, uh, the, another early article you look at is uh, Ben Torres, one of the great early writers of Rolling Stone, writing about Tina Turner. I think that's right.
1: been an R&B fan, but this was beyond R&B. This was showmanship. This was rock and roll.
0: And that seemed like an interesting choice because, you know, as I said, Rolling Stone was often cast as a very male environment. And also a critique of it is that it didn't often uh, put African-American musicians uh, on the cover. Um, Was any of that thinking behind that choice of that article?
2: I think, one, just it's a great profile. And Ben Torres is, is, I think, such an, a symbol of the magazine and, and was kind of wanting to do something new. We needed to include him in the film somehow. And frankly, Tina Turner is just a joy to watch and listen to. And we found all this amazing performance footage. Um, and so that sort of made it a little bit easier. But no, I think also...
1: It,
2: it, we interviewed John Landau, who's the magazine's first music critic, um, and John's writ was, as he says in the film, I only, I covered black music and black musicians, and I was surprised. I I spent a lot of time reading the first few years of the magazine. Um, Jan gave me his bound copy, so I had the physical magazine. And I was surprised because I know that criticism, and that criticism is warranted, I think, for certain eras of the magazine, for sure, and they're very late to rap and hip-hop, for example, later on in the 80s. But in those Early years, they're actually doing a fair job, I think, of covering black musicians mm-hmm. and, and, in particular, John Landau, championing them. I also thought it was interesting that there's there's such a there, there's so much um, around the issue of rock and roll and black musicians and appropriation, and here were Ike and Tina, who I think were reclaiming. Their roots in a certain way. And Tina talks pretty candidly. Like I grew up listening to R and b, but I really liked rock. and and those things are so intimately intertwined. And she sort of symbolized that to me. well,
0: there's a great line, which I take it as Ben Fontour's writing comparing Mick Jagger, Tina Turner. People have said that Tina Turner's like a you know, female Mick Jagger. It'd be more appropriate to say Mick Jagger's a male Tina Turner.
2: It felt important to point out that, Uh, that there was something there before the Rolling Stones. Um, And uh, I think Tina was a nice, subtle way of doing that.
1: It flies by pretty quickly in that sequence, and it may be politically incorrect to say so, but you also understand how at their height, from a musical perspective, Ike and Tina worked together. Mm -hmm. Because he was really an extraordinary arranger of music. And, And you can see that at work. And she was the... Uh, instrument um, and she was an incredible performer, but you can see Ike kind of putting together the kind of musical arrangements in a way that's 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 quite powerful now we, we know about the other stuff but but that was the that that footage that Blair found is really interesting in that way
0: yeah um, so you talked about uh, Jan Wenner being an executive producer of this project. What was the editorial relationship with Jan Wenner, who's a famously controlling person?
1: we had a few arguments but but i but i i mean he was cool about it. it it was not something that he he didn't have editorial control so um you know we showed him a uh, a rough cut of each um part and and he weighed in with his comments and to to the extent that we felt it was warranted we 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 included some of them i mean he knew, he certainly knew the subject well so it didn't seem to me to be a conflict. And, and we approached this very much as a celebration, I think, of, of the magazine. It wasn't a, an investigation. But also, we told them forthrightly at the top that we were going to have to deal with one of the more... Uh, one of the maybe the most problematic episode in Rolling Stone's history, which is the UVA scandal. That we had to do it. That we, we might as well not do the project if we weren't going to do that. Yeah. So, so it was a, it was a pretty good relationship, you know, and he was very generous in terms of um, opening up the keys to the kingdom in terms of the archival materials. Uh, and um, so, so it, was a, it was a good relationship.
0: In part two of the documentary, we see a clip of Hunter Thompson in the 1980s criticizing Jan Wenner for his embrace of Reagan values.
1: It started off as music and politics. The gossip crept in. That's a, that was a deadly thing. Bon Jovi, whatever, you know, what color he paints his fingernails is more important than the fact that Ronald Reagan is president. I think it's a shame. I don't know what uh, how you feel. Uh, I think Jan, you know, in, in the uh, darkness of his private nights, should be ashamed. It is a shame The Rolling Stone is not more of a weapon and a tool.
0: By the 1980s, Rolling Stone was fully embracing consumer capitalism. They created a presentation for advertisers titled, perception versus reality.
1: Well, it was basically the whole idea of the yuppie, you know, that that you have the the person who thinks of themselves as the pot-smoking deadhead when, in fact, they become the corporate lawyer who uh, eviscerates the rights of regular (laughs) citizens. Um, So this this was like
0: a pitch deck, what we call now a pitch deck, that Rolling Stone's advertising salesmen were taking out to... Car companies and banks and whoever and it'd have two pictures juxtaposed, like the perception. Here's a dope smoking hippie. The reality, as you described, here's a guy in a suit, and this is who the real Rolling Stone reader is.
1: Yeah, because it had a kind of double edged quality to it. Because on the one hand, it was being honest about where the um, where the counterculture was going and how it was growing into affluence. But also, it was very cynically designed to attract advertisers. Jan always went where the money was. He and that—that that was the approach to the covers, um, and and it was very conscious. He always wanted to make money, and and so you you have to see Jan as one of those great rock and roll entrepreneurs. That's not unlike the music business, where. You know, you think of the music coming out of the 60s as being all about taking on the man, and very soon the music business was the man, or the music business really always was the man. It was just a disreputable part of the business, and as it got bigger and bigger and bigger, it became more and more corporate.
0: So in a way, the defense is that Rolling Stone didn't sell out. It was selling out from the beginning,
2: if you go back from the very beginning, the magazine is almost automatically <laughs> criticized for selling out. Within the within the year, they're being criticized for selling out. I think the very existence of the magazine, to a certain extent, is a sort of commodification of youth culture that's a selling out. And so it's criticized from the start. So it's an age-old criticism uh, by the 80s, Jan's just capitalizing on it. Right.
1: And I think to be fair to, to Jan and Rolling Stone, it's every magazine. In other words, magazines would put pop stars in their covers so they could sell the investigative journalism that was being done, hopefully, inside, you know. And, you know, most magazines until recently when when journalism, you know, disappeared, were making money off of um, sex ads. Um,
0: The Village Voice. The Village
1: Voice. And uh, so it was like that was the way it worked. You had to find, um, you know, you had to have a savvy view of the market or your um, uh, pure-hearted journalism wasn't gonna survive. Nobody's gonna be able to pay the bills.
0: I guess in a way today, like you can look at HBO uh, where this film aired and Sheila Evans had a similar formula uh, with her real sex shows and, and her harder-hitting journalism. That's programs. right. Uh, buy,
2: buy the magazine for Britney Spears, but stay for Fast Food Nation. Huh? That's That was the calculus.
0: While Alex and Blair were making their film, the writer Joe Hagen was completing an epic biography of Jan Wenner called Sticky Fingers. The book delivers a complex view of Wener and his tumultuous personal and professional relationships. Hagen has an advantage as a writer with 500 pages to build nuanced character studies. But the film has an advantage of bringing those characters to life on screen and incorporating the music that drives the whole story. Here's a clip from the documentary of the San Francisco music critic Ralph Gleason, who was a mentor to Wenner. Rolling Stone started with the assumption that music was of infinitely greater importance to an upcoming generation of Americans than anyone had ever thought it was before. And we were right.
1: photographs of Ralph Gleason hanging around uh, on a table, you know, you know, sort of laughing with the Beatles just before the Beatles last concert. You know, it it tells you everything you need to know about Ralph Gleason, who was so much a part of that music scene and so intrigued and entranced by musicians. Um, there was a sense of joy you can see in his face, and yet he 's clearly you know uh, uh, a great journalist and an intellectual and, and seeing it at some distance, but also as an enthusiast. so you get it and then, and then seeing him talk directly to camera, I, I, look that 's what, that's what film does that 's what docs do. You, you experience something viscerally uh, in a way that, that print can 't always deliver in 1968.
0: 1968- Wenner scored a major interview with John Lennon that elevated the magazine. Both Hagen's book and the documentary focus on the interview with different points of emphasis. The documentary contains a BBC clip of John Lennon and Yoko Ono being interviewed by the New York Times reporter Gloria Emerson. What do you know about a protest movement anyway? I know a lot it's about it. It's a Thank lot more me. than sending you your chauffeur you in your car
2: back to
0: Buckingham Palace. You're just a snob about it. The only way you're to a make fake. if I'm going to get on the front page, I might as well get on the front page with the word peace. But
2: you've made yourself ridiculous. To
0: some people, I don't care. If it saves lives,
2: you don't think you? Oh, my dear boy, you're living in a nether, Netherlands.
0: Gloria Emerson comes off pretty lousy in this scene, but I want to add a word on her behalf. She was a war correspondent in Vietnam and wrote the book Winners and Losers. I met her in 2004 at a screening of Hearts and Minds and spent a memorable night listening to her stories. Thirty years after Vietnam, she remained deeply sympathetic to the soldiers and contemptuous for the politicians. I told Alex and Blair that it was hard for me to watch this scene of her lecturing Lenin, I wish she was still alive to give a fresh take.
1: She looks so bad in that moment. She's she's just the epitome of the mainstream journalist at that time. So haughty, so dismissive, so so much the the decider. She's not really listening to Lenin. She's just prattling on about how she thinks he should behave, which is really a, a kind of staggering comment on that kind of journalism.
0: I can only imagine that Gloria Emerson at that point had been to Vietnam and, you know, maybe, you know, felt a sense of seriousness about it that she didn't see reflected in hippies protesting the street. I don't know. That's-
1: yeah, I get it. But, you know, John Lennon's a singer um, and and he wrote an anthem called Give Peace a Chance. And, um, and I, I think that she, you know, her view was that the only way you fix the problems of the world is by talking to politicians who do the dirty work of, of, of legislation and so forth and so on. John Lennon was saying something that she couldn't really hear, which is you can ha- you, you can engage in a kind of popular voice and make that popular voice emotional in a way that carries a, a kind of broader sense of um, a, a moment and identity that transcends the politics Um, that was so much a part of the problem to begin with in the Vietnam War. It's one of the reasons I I remember, you know, Ken Kesey had this famous uh, protest that he he came in on a great anti-war protest and, and he and the pranksters, who were probably high on acid, you know, rolled in all dressed up as soldiers with guns, with fake guns and so forth and so on. And it was a way of kind of mocking the military aspect of... Um, the protest itself, and saying you gotta you gotta explode your thinking about this because you're just the flip side of what's going on in Washington, um, and and while I don't agree with all of that, I, I think it's a kind of perspective, and that's what she wasn't seeing. She saw, you know, look, I've been to Vietnam, I, I know what war's like. You don't, you're you're a you're a child of privilege, and you're just playing around. But John Lennon had a very serious Mo two and uh, and and they couldn't hear each other. One thing that uh,
0: that the film doesn't cover is that after that 1968 interview, um, Wenner defied Lenin's wishes and published the interview as a book. And the two never spoke again in uh, again.
1: I think it's fair to say we should have put that in. Um, you know, uh, we focused on the article, but yeah, that was a moment when. Uh, I, I think they did reconcile at the, but there was a long period of time where they didn't speak.
2: I, I don't i I don't know that they ever spoke again, but John, I mean, right before he died, was doing an interview with John Cott for the magazine. I mean, right. it, it was not John. it was not the end of John's relationship with the magazine. And I like that episode because it really, i think epitomizes that that sort of symbiotic relationship between the magazine and rock stars who are constantly criticized criticizing the magazine if they're not they don't like their reviews in the case of led zeppelin and they or they don't like their coverage but at the same time the magazine becomes a very useful tool to a lot of rock stars it's a forum that takes them seriously that it publishes extended interviews with them by by people like john cott who is you know also interviewing you know leonard bernstein for the magazine i mean it's it takes what they it takes this job of rock and roll serious in a way that no one else does. And so I think there's a back and forth between Rolling Stone and Jan, as personified the magazine, and these rock stars that continues to this day. At the end of the doc, we talk about Bob Dylan's very long 50-year relationship with the magazine and the way he's used the magazine in the interview as a way to engage with his fans and readers and himself. It's its fascinating to read all his interviews.
1: There's a very moving piece of writing about John Lennon's death, um, which is- Creole Marcus. Creole Marcus. And it gets at the heart of what rock and roll means within this m- terrifying moment of his murder uh, in a way that was Rolling Stone at its best. So out of the other end comes this long relationship with John Lennon where they take that moment of the greatest tragedy and turn it into some larger sense of understanding of, of literally why we care about music like that.
0: After Hunter Thompson, or maybe alongside Hunter Thompson, the best known contributor uh, to Rolling Stone would be Annie Leibovitz. Um, and you have a scene with uh, Jan Wenner and Annie Leibowitz kind of looking over a portfolio of uh, her photos. It's one of the only scenes in the film where you see people interacting. Um, and uh, I was very interested in, in the, the background to that scene because I, I know that they had a tumultuous career. And when Annie Leibwitz left Rolling Stone, I, I understand that was a real rift uh, between them. And so, so what was the dynamic like to make her part of this project and, and shoot that scene?
2: We were very lucky with our timing because she was preparing a sh- for a show in Europe of her early work, which is really almost entirely Rolling Stone, and um, and she, she was prepping for it in the South Bronx, which is where we shot that. And Jan went to her and asked if we could film them in conversation together, and and she said yes. And I will say that when he showed up to, to for us to film. It was like a switch turned on with the both of them. She lit up. He, you know, Jan is sort of always on, but there was a palpable change in the room you could feel and that these were two lifelong friends who have the kinds of ups and downs and disputes that two strong-willed creative people have when they've known each other and who knew each other when they were young and formed their careers together when they were young. And that's what they were revisiting too. So it was... Very, very powerful. One of the most intense filming experiences I think I've been a part of. I I don't know. I
1: agree. I mean, it was it it it, it was starting off as something where they were going to wander a little bit, uh, and we were going to do a little bit of B roll, and it ended up being an enormous walk through this entire very massive um, retrospective of her uh, particular Rolling Stone work, where they were transported to that earlier era. And two very important things came out of it. One was her great sense of uh, gratitude that Jan gave her that opportunity early on when she was so young. And also she was a woman at a time when female photographers weren't that much in evidence. And she talked about how she got a lot of these intimate photos with John Lennon and Yoko Ono, in part because they were so engaged by the idea that instead of sending a professional, a so-called professional, meaning some middle-aged guy who was going to come in with lots of assistance and his camera equipment. They sent this young woman uh, with her um, camera, her 35 millimeter camera, and she just hung out with him, which is part of, of course of getting um, those those great photos too, is how do you, you know, that's what Pennebaker was so good at, is how, how do you hang out and, mm-hmm. and, and, and and observe and be part of the scene at the same time being a part of it. And then the the story at the end, where she took the last photo of John Lennon. And it's the photo of him naked curled up next to Yoko. Which, uh, and, and they were doing it for a piece that was gonna be about John Lennon and he felt very strongly that it should be a photo of both of them, not just him. And then when he died, when he was murdered, um, you know, the natural instinct was to put a photo of John Lennon on the cover. Um, but Annie, you know, reminded Jan that he, she had promised him that the photo, his cover photo, which they didn't know it was going to be for his, for his passing, uh, would be the both of them. And she felt very strongly that they honored that promise, and, 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 and Jan backed her up, and that's the photo that um, they put on the cover without anything else. There was no print. It was just that photo of John Lennon curled up next to Yoko.
0: In 2014, Rolling Stone published a story called A Rape on Campus by writer Sabrina rubin Erdely. It profiles an 18-year-old woman who claimed she was assaulted by fraternity members at the University of Virginia. After the publication, other reporters discovered that her story didn't hold up. The magazine was sued for libel and lost. I asked the filmmakers how they approached this black mark in the magazine's history.
2: I think we were just very as straightforward as we could be about it. There wasn't really much there to do other than just tackle it head on and talk to everyone we could. We reached out to Sabrina both through an intermediary and through her lawyer and didn't get a response. But Jan talks about it candidly. Will Dana, the editor uh, at the time, talks about it. Uh, Steve Cole, who is the dean of Columbia Journalism Review, who Jan brought in to do to do a review.
0: Well, the the Will Dana interview is especially poignant uh i felt uh, here's a man who lost his job over the story you know it's a terrible weight it's a terrible thing to happen any career Um, and even when he's talking to your camera it it feels you know fresh uh to uh, to him we opened ourselves up to a very transparent investigation and it wasn't seen as like here's an otherwise trustworthy place that made a mistake, it was seen as, oh, this is those elite mainstream media journalists revealing their true colors. People used to view Rolling Stone as being on their side. And something shifted more recently where, you know, it became just another piece of the mainstream media that couldn't be trusted.
2: The whole situation, whenever we talk to anyone, it's still very raw. I think it's really, there's all of the journalists that we talked to as, as much as they have a complicated relationship with Jan and with the magazine, are very proud of the journalism that the magazine has done and that they've done for the magazine. There's no question universally every journalist said no other magazine gave us the the long leash to do what we did and a lot of the journalists still care about will very much. it was very personal to a lot of people, and you can feel that rawness in everyone that we talk to
1: and also you know one of the things that people may not know about rolling stone magazine is you think oh it's the rock and roll magazine they just kind of make this shit up as they go along and it's all slapdash um and and, and not much examined that's not true they have a very rigorous uh fact checking policy you know ask matt taibbi you know it, it's uh, you know even if you write in a gonzo style um, there is a tremendous amount of work done in terms of being rigorous about getting the facts right, um, but all the systems failed in this story. In part, it's um, that classic tale of the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I think they so desperately wanted to give voice to victims that they were too trusting, and 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 you had the perfect storm of a victim who had made the stuff up, and they fell victim to that particularly in the context of the moment we're living in right now um there was a kind of uh, flashback included in the film um of a, of a woman talking about an editorial meeting when she had
2: Marianne partridge
1: right talking about how she was raising um some uh 15 20 years before doing uh, an article about rape and there were a lot of catcalls and 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 also a lot of caustic remarks around the editorial table, saying, "Look, the rape. What's the big deal? Why don't you just lie back and enjoy it?" Something we would find utterly uh, impossible to to happen at an editorial meeting today. But it was that was part of the culture then, um, and um, uh, and she said that Jan, you know, to his credit, uh, was paying attention, that uh, he was taking her seriously, but it also showed. The, the, the heartfelt sense of wanting to get that right, which led to the disaster that was the UVA crisis. You want to be on the side of the victim, but um, that's the tough thing about journalism is that you always have to be alert. You have to follow the facts and- um, It
2: does raise the point of like, this is a magazine that the editorial staff is almost entirely male and that in this case um, there was a fear I think of you know liberal men questioning a female reporter and a large a department of fact checkers that was largely female as well and wanting to push back and say well we're uncomfortable questioning a rape victim and here here is this female reporter and these female fact checkers Um, had there been maybe a few women Editors at a higher level, there might have been a, a little bit more of a robust discussion about it. Let's say,
0: uh, you know, we're living through this incredible period of sexual harassment exposure, and when I read some of these stories, uh, you know, about a Harvey Weinstein or James Toback, something that goes through my head is it's like they think they're rock stars. Uh, you know, th- <laughs> like this, this, this is a kind of something that we associate with rock star cocksucker blues era behavior, you know. And I wonder, as you've immersed yourself in this era and in this magazine that was the kind of loudspeaker for unchained, transgressive, sexual behavior, you know, going back to the Groupies article, uh, you know, that the rock stars are uh, the new gods. I mean, I wonder... What do you think the, the kind of magazine's contribution was to the culture in creating that milieu?
1: I mean, I think that the magazine both inhabited a kind of unequal world. That is to say, the, the world of the rock star was mostly a male world, you know, with a, with a few precious exceptions. And, um, you know, there was, a, there was a, a, a wild sense of sexual freedom. Which I I'm happy to say I, I think should have been embraced. But there was also a, you know, a, a sense that the men had the power and and there was an unequal quality to that, those many of those sexual relationships where the men were to be serviced um, rather than, you know, consensual adults doing whatever the hell they wanted. And I think we're in a moment now, too, we're coming back around to trying to to recapture that. You know, how can we embrace sexuality in all of its many um forms um, while at the same time properly inveighing against abuses of power, um, which then, you know, use sexuality as one of their mechanisms, in part because it's a primary human force. So I think Rolling Stone both inhabited that world and and and, and exemplified attitudes that we might wince at a little bit today, but at the same time push forward with a sense of honesty about uh, sexual freedom that I think was important. Hmm.
2: And It's interesting because our team on this project was uh, a lot of them were 20somethings and hmm. it was fun to sort of gauge their reaction to a lot of uh, a lot of this. and um, in some ways it was a much more conservative reaction than I. And that was interesting to me. And, and can you give an example? Uh, well, the groupies. I think there was a period where we experimented with having a woman read the groupies article. So, uh, so Jeff Daniels is sort of the voice of the magazine in the film, and we experimented with that because I think the groupies, you know, Baron woman, the photographer who photographed all those women. For him, he saw it as here were these women owning their sexuality and. Um, uh, why shouldn't women enjoy sex and have sex with whomever they want? Valid point. Um, at the same time, you know, I think actually maybe Jan called a little bullshit on that in a way and was like, oh, that's just sort of, you know, something people say to justify <laughs> what they're doing later. And it, it is ultimately pretty sexist. I mean, keep in mind that Jan um, has been married to a man for 20, 25 years. And so I think there's, an idea of sexuality that's pretty fluid in that world that was very late to come out, come late to come to the fore. But um, I think that, yeah, I think the magazine is both responsible for pushing it forward and holding it back at the same time.
0: I wanna thank Alex Gibney and Blair Foster for speaking with me. You can watch their two-part film, Rolling Stone Stories from the Edge on HBO. If you enjoy Pure Nonfiction, I invite you to listen to our short-form podcast called Documentary of the Week. Every Friday, we take two minutes to recommend a new film. Documentary of the Week is produced by WNYC. You can subscribe for free on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, visit wnyc.org docs. Thanks to the Pure Nonfiction team. Series producer, Sarah Moto, Sound mixer, Tom Micah. Web designer, Cross Strategy. And social media master, Jordan Smith. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams and our executive producer is Rafaela Dayhausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.